It's April 14, 2022, and welcome to Leaders on the Frontier. My name is David Lease, and I'm your host today. The Frontier Center for Public Policy is about better public policy for a better tomorrow. Our topic today is fascinating. It's about a turning point in history. In 1982, Saskatchewan had its general election, and it proved to be um, a fundamental turning point in the province's history. And that's the argument made by this recently released book uh, from Frontier, So Much More We Can Be. And it's entitled Saskatchewan's Paradigm Shift and the Final Chapter on the Divine Government, 1982 to 1991. And the book is by Edward Willett, Gerald, uh, Gerard Lassitian, and Joseph Rolko. This um, election was uh, quite significant because when Divine and the Progressive Conservatives came to power in 1982, it disrupted the historical status quo of heavy government involvement and ownership in the lives of the Saskatchewan people. And there was a lasting legacy. Over their nine years in office, the Grant Divine government commenced and completed many programs and projects. And while some projects did not come to fruition until many years later, many of them fundamentally shifted and created arguably long-lasting positive effects on Saskatchewan's revenues, employment, and economic well-being. It's hard to believe that happened um, this anniversary and some 40 years ago. I am very pleased to welcome our guest, the Honourable Grant Devine, who was elected the 11th Premier of Saskatchewan, serving two terms from 1982 to 1991. He is a University of Saskatchewan agriculture graduate with degrees from the University of Alberta and Ohio State University, where he did his PhD. He um, uh, did a variety of roles, including teaching at the U of S in the 1970s before entering, entering politics. And he currently has a farm and ranch near Moose Jaw, where he previously served as chairman of Live Bid Auction and served as a director for Agrium. In 2009, he was honored with the Saskatchewan Order of Merit for his contributions to the province. And Grant Devine currently serves on several committees of the Board of Governors at the University of Saskatchewan. And I understand on the weekend, he was just inducted into Saskatchewan's Agriculture Hall of, Hall of Fame. So congratulations, uh, Mr. Devine. Thank you very much, Dennis. It's a pleasure to be here. And I do want to thank the Frontier Center for Public Policy for having the initiative and courage to write the book about uh, the times that we were in government. And I obviously would encourage people to follow up on it. It's a, it's a very interesting history and we'll learn more about it today. Well, it's an honor to have you. And um, I just wanna set the historical stage. So take us back to April 26, 1982, 40 years ago when a young man in his thirties, I believe, uh, dared to lead a dynamic team of leaders. And uh, you came up with an election landslide. In fact, if memory serves me correctly, you won 54.1% of the popular vote and you won a landslide, 55 of the 65 electoral seats. And um, you defeated at the time the NDP, um, Alan Blakeney government. So what was that moment like for you? Well, it was, uh, it was awesome. Uh, we had, uh, had campaigned for hard and long and uh, had suffered several defeats 
as you may know, um, I was defeated in the 78 election, then I ran for leader and won, and then I was defeated in very good riding Estevan uh, again. And so it was a challenge for a lot of people, not, not only for myself and my family, but for those that were following me to say, well, you know, what's this, what's, what's this all about? I mean, it, are we going to hang in there? So I did, after that by-election, limp back into Regina, and I said to my team, well, I'm, I'm going to hang in there because I think there's a lot more we can be, and as the book says, so much more we can be, so let's go for it. And, and the next election, we won every seat but nine. It was a, a landslide. And finally, people uh, captured the imagination that we had, and, and I picked up on just by listening to people telling me what they thought we could be and what they thought their community could be and their wow. farms could be and their industry could be. So it was, it was an amazing time, historic. We got calls literally from all over North America and even from abroad. People couldn't believe it. I mean, they just said, wow. what? what? <laughs> anyway, it was a very exciting night. So can you tell us a little bit more about the lead up to the election win? Um, like given the context of the province, it's hard to imagine 1982 some 40 years ago, but it was, it was quite a challenging time. Um, how, what, like, what were you, you mentioned about listening, what were you hearing? Um, and how did you know or think that the people of Saskatchewan might be open to change? Well, I'll say a couple of things. One, I give a great deal of credit to my university professors that implanted in me the value of free markets and I really believed in it, and uh, it's another story, but we did a lot of research on antitrust, anti-combines legislation, and showed that, that markets can function really well, but you have to have a referee. And that was dominant in my mind when I was listening to people. And what I heard from people is that, you know, we could build this, we could do that. You know, if there are logs going to, the truck's going to New York anyway, to hauling logs, what if we hauled paper? I mean, it's just a multiple of value and stories of how we could save water, how we could increase our economic activity in food, fertilizer, and energy. And uh, I just kept listening. And as you listen, and as they say, if you listen and you learn, then maybe you can lead. Because in my case, I had a really good sound economic background academically. And then if you start to put together the thoughts of people on the ground, it starts to fit and say, we've got multipliers here. We have huge multi economic multipliers. Uh, so as I started giving that same picture back to them, they probably thought I was pretty smart, but I was just listening to them and giving back and say, well, here's how we can do it. Here's how we could do it. And finally it caught up. Well, so that kind of training and background, uh, Grant, was, was instructive in very, laying very the basis for, for ability to offer vision and, and frankly, leadership. Well, it was, and it gave me confidence from an economic point of view and then a political point of view, those that were campaigning against me, I could defend myself because I had model after model and centuries of what markets can do, uh, private and publicly traded markets. And the, the whole agriculture sector is one great big market with no end of entrepreneurs. So uh, that foundation was really helpful for me when I got on television, when I got in radio, when I was in debates, because the foundation gave me that cornerstone and I could fire back. And it was difficult to beat all that theory. I mean, there's two things I recognized is that 
you know, the marketplace needs a referee. And I understand that having been involved in, in price discrimination and some other things where we could straighten out the market. The public market in government is much more difficult to referee. So the more you can take out of the public market, which is really complicated because it's full of politics, and put it in the, the, the marketplace itself in the free market, the easier it is to manage and higher the productivity. So that obviously had an impact on how I thought about things and people began to pick up on it. Very good. So can you tell us a little bit more about not only that academic background, but where you grew up and kind of your family story in, in a nutshell and how that framed or formed you as a leader and the kind of values that you stood for? Well, I think I grew up on the farm and I grew up in the same yard as my grandparents. My mom and dad uh, were married in 1944 and I was born after the war. We moved out to the farm. So I, I grew up uh, with people that worked with their hands. Uh, they loved nature. They were compassionate. Uh, I can remember my grandfather shutting down the combine on his land and moving to the neighbors who didn't have anything combined and to do that. Uh, we went to church, we played music, we played lots of sports. 4-H was a big uh, uh, instrument in my life because I took uh, calves and I was in the, uh, the horse 4-H and competed. Played a lot of baseball. My dad and uncle are in the Baseball Hall of Fame. So that wow. we were passionate. I learned to be compassionate and follow them, and but very competitive at the same time. And those, those two features are in sort of the pioneer that they're, they'll help their neighbor, but if they get in a hockey rink against somebody from another town and their friends, they'll board them right out of the rink, right? But that's just the nature. And it's a fascinating combination of, of features in Saskatchewan, and I'm sure an awful lot of Canadian. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating background because then you have that, both that academic training, that kind of hands-on applied learning and sense of community, uh, but those lessons learned about the, the power of the, the, the free market, as well as rules, if you will, regarding that. Yeah, well, and I think that's it's important. I mean, I, I grew up with various kinds of politics. I had a grandfather that was CCF and a grandfather that was liberal, and I think they voted for Deef and Baker federally. I mean, it was just, we heard it all. But one thing they knew uh, from any of their politics is it takes competition for those markets to work. And I recall one grandfather who was complaining <laughs> that the price of coal in town was too high and it was only one seller. And that went on for weeks and weeks and weeks, but to keep the story short. So he loaded up a team with a wagon and he went 20 miles south to the CPR line, loaded up some coal. And as he said, as I got back closer to the town where there was one seller, he said, I could see the price of coal coming down, <laughs> right? And even though he appreciated the co-op movement and others, he said, you have to have two to compete. And that was just universally accepted. You didn't want a monopoly. And, you, and the government was fine, but you didn't necessarily want the government to run it all either. So it was a balance. And that's where I go back to my training in industrial organization and my experience on the farm. Very good. Do you remember a discussion with your wife, Chantel, and how you decided to actually throw your hat in the ring and uh, run for electoral politics? <laughs> well, all right. Well, uh, part of my portfolio as a young professor was what they call extension work. So myself and Red Williams and Bill Cooper and others would 
go out into the country and speak to ratepayers meetings and wheat pool meetings and livestock meetings. And, <clears throat> and we were talking about multipliers and economic uh, activity and uh, free markets and free trade and so forth. And so we got some pushback probably from my old friend uh, Roy Atkinson who headed up the farmers union and I, I mm -hmm. used to speak at his events and others who are a little more left wing. Long story short, they tried to get me to shut up or get kicked out of the university. So my dean stood up for me and finally it got pretty hot. So I came home from lunch one, for lunch one day and I said to Chantel, we've got three options. Either I have to stop talking about what I was taught at universities. And she looked at me and said, you know, they'll never shut you up. <laughs> I, or we got to move. And she said, are you kidding me? We have moved to Ottawa and to Edmonton and Columbus, Ohio, and back and forth and hauling U-Hauls and kids were not moving. So I said, well, then we got to take them on. Uh, I wasn't partisan. Honest to God, I wasn't partisan at the time. But the only alternative were the conservatives. And they had done relatively well in 78. And so a friend of mine, uh, former Senator Dave Tkachuk, uh, I had known from university days, he invited me to meet the leader. and. And that was it. Wow, that's fascinating. Now, when you ran and uh, you successfully um, ended up as leader of the party of the conservative, progressive conservative party, um, you did not have a seat. And I know that part of your story is that you did a lot of traveling around the province. And I, I think a key theme for you has been listening. Can you tell us more about the importance of listening to your approach to leadership? Well, I'll give you some examples. I mean, it was true. I wasn't in the legislature and they called me the invisible man because I couldn't sit in the legislature. So all I really did was uh, travel and listen to people and their stories. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of stories that, that impacted me. Um, in the south of Weyburn and Estevan, there's Long Creek. And the farmers kept saying to me, you know, we could save that water. It, it's amazing how much water comes through there and we could save it for uh, cooling our power generation, for recreation, for flyways, for wetlands, and we could probably provide flood support for Minot, North Dakota. And so I listened to that and, and it stuck with me. Um, another example I will give you while it was in government is that we had a bad drought in 88. And this is a very good example of listening. And we held a cabinet meeting in Assiniboia, Saskatchewan. And at that time, to collect any insurance from that drought, because the crops were like 10 or 15 bushels, all over the province, mostly. And we met a Reeve and he said, I'll tell you what, I need to save seed and I need to save feed for my livestock. I'll leave a one mile strip, but let me harvest the rest of it. And the strip, the crop insurance could look at it. And bingo, we said, that makes so much sense. They need seed and they need feed. Mm -hmm. And we can measure it and it'll be 99% accurate. So we passed an order in council, certainly drafted one, and sent it back to Regina and, you know, all first or to fly. We can't do that. We can't do that. Well, those kinds of things we did. And we built on the views of the people living on the land. And for years and years, they've been saying the same thing, but nobody had listened closely enough. So if you listen and you learn, and then you know how to do it from your academic background and the great team that I had around me that understood it and, and believed in it, that made just a huge difference. And over and over again, why don't we build our own fertilizer plant? We have all the natural gas in the world and we're importing nitrogen fertilizer. So farmers said, why don't we have our own? 
you know, it just on it, you know, as I said, the truck's going anyway to New York. Why don't we put something valuable on it, right? Wow. So those kinds of things were instrumental in making me believe the people were right. And if you add some economics and some model building to what they believed in from your past experience, then you can pull it off. And the same thing is true for privatization and others. Get it out of government, put it in the private sector, and it just made a world of difference. Wow. Sounds like a lot of uh, themes of common sense. Fair amount. Yeah. Well, actually, when you look back, it was a little, uh, it was a little dangerous politically. But as I said, we thought we'd only get one term, so we better give her snooze, as my grandfather would say and get as much done as possible. Wow. Uh, and so we did, we just said, look, we, I'm not doing any surveys. I've listened to the people. They may be not sure how we're gonna pull it off, but they really want us no, to do it. Just, just so hold we, on for a sec there. So you're saying that you didn't do surveys at the beginning and you really had an attitude that you just may be there for just one term. So you're gonna to try to do as best you can and get as much as you, you can done as possible. Is that right? That's absolutely true. Wow. Uh, when we decided that we were going to build Rafferty and Alameda Dam, we didn't do research. We had lots of organizations, even wildlife organizations against me and David Suzuki and a bunch of other people. And as it happened, I mean, it's a wonderful project that fills with water, no end of time or several times uh, and it has in the past. So we didn't do research to find out where we were going. We knew it was, while it, the potash and oil and uranium had been nationalized just before we took government we said it's got to put it back in the private sector so we just said we're going to do it most people just shook their head and said you know you can't do that you can't build water projects you can't do this you can't. well we just did because the ordinary person said yes you can if you're smart enough and passionate enough to sell the story so oh we didn't do surveys we just did what we thought was right and it ended up not all of them paid off right away. So many people could say, well, you shouldn't have done it, should have Later, as you and I both know, they paid off in literally billions of dollars. Well, billions. no, it's, it's a great story. So tell us more about when you began office. And you had a lot of meetings, I know. And in fact, one of them was with a gentleman named Peter Lougheed, uh, the former premier of Alberta. Um, can you tell us more about that and, and how that influenced your sense or basic vision around the role of government? Well, certainly. Uh, Peter Lougheed was a great deal of uh, support for me. Um, and he was what I would call a classic progressive conservative. And my government was a progressive conservative. And what I mean by that, I was in Peter's office in Edmonton and sat down the first time that I was invited to join him. And he said, you know, if you want to have money, for education and highways, and healthcare and natural public goods. He says, that's fine. But he says, look out across this city. You've got to have the private sector booming and going as hard as you can so that they make money and they have revenue that you can take and, and apply to the kinds of things you want to do over here. And he says that balance, that balance is extremely important. And if it gets out of skew, you're gonna be one way or the other. You're not gonna have enough money for the public good side. Or if you go the other way, uh, you'll find out that the private sector, you've over-regulated, you, you beat on them, you've discounted them and so forth, and they'll move or go someplace else or they won't be as effective. So he says it's a constant battle. battle, uh, battle. 
And in my case, from my experience in, in referent, refereeing the marketplace, it's much easier to referee the market than it is the government side. Because the government side is full of a black hole. Uh, they do a lot of good. I've been a civil servant myself, but there's a lot of politics involved. And if I could give you an illustration, okay, this is quickly, this is quickly. I played a lot of baseball, but you can imagine if you're playing baseball, there are rules and the umpire has the rules. Think for a moment that that's the private sector. What if all the umpires got together and they formed a team? Okay, that's government, right? Now they could be an honest team, but they could start pulling some strings and doing some things and not a lot the private sector can do about it. So you want to move a lot of those umpires back to being umpires and have uh, a more responsive time in government. So you can, you've got to watch that balance and that balance politically for, and for economic reasons is extremely important. Well, so it's a powerful analogy. So let's think about that a little bit if we can. Um, you come into government, so describe kind of the, the landscape, the state of the province, if you will, in terms of that very situation. You had a lot of crown corporations, a lot of heavy duty regulation. Like it was a obviously a philosophy that had been applied to the province for some time. I mean, after all, Saskatchewan is the um, home base, if you will, of the birth of the CCF and the NDP. Yeah. Right? Well, I, that's true. I mean, when I came back from Ohio State in December 74 and started teaching here to some degree, and I say that with respect to my own province, it was a little bit like going into Eastern Europe. Uh, the government had just nationalized the major industries and they thought, well, we will run those. And then they started saying, well, I'll own the farm, something called land bank, and you can farm for the government. And it was just, it was for me as, a, as an economist and a student moving around into various universities and coming back from Ohio State, which was very, quite balanced. And my education was balanced there. It just, I thought there's so much, you know, really so much more we can be. So it was, a, it was frustrating. And then as we've talked earlier, as I got talking about the alternative, it, 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 it frustrated a lot of other people who, who you know, were pretty strongly supportive of the CCF NDP uh, government. So we just said, you know, if, if we're going to change it and we get a chance, uh, we're going to do it. And you can imagine the debates. I mean, these big industries had just been nationalized, like Venezuela. And then we went in and had to debate privatizing them. I mean, it was classic, classic political drama. Yeah. And wow. so, yeah, so we had what I give credit to is my team of people, cabinet ministers and MLAs who, who listen to the coach, right? You're a coach, just like you're on a ball team or a hockey team and say, well, this is what we got to do. And they just rose to the occasion and they defended it and we passed it and it, and eventually showed to be very, very positive. Wow. So, um, you know, it's just quite the, the background. So how would you describe the, the attitude and the culture then as you experienced that, uh, as you were listening carefully to uh, the people of Saskatchewan at that time? Well, I'll give you an example of the culture. Um, the prime minister at the time, Brian Mulroney, had introduced, in cooperation with Mexico and the United States, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And so he suggested and said, we have to have a plebiscite in every jurisdiction. So I campaigned hard for free trade because I thought, you know, we can produce potash and oil and gas and wheat and cattle and hogs and, and fertilizer as well as anybody. And I, I mean, in hindsight, that's certainly been true. 
So we campaigned hard, but interestingly enough, at that time, Saskatchewan people were still frightened and they voted against it. Most jurisdictions supported it. Today, Saskatchewan, there's, there are a bunch of free traders. We've got the confidence to say, I can compete with any American on anything that I do here if you just give me an equal chance. And it's shown that we've got the largest fertilizer companies in the world. We're really good at oil, really good at potash, really good at energy and in agriculture and in diversified agriculture and processing and manufacturing. So we've changed, instead of being timid under, I would say, a, an extremely left-wing government, we became confident that we can compete and our children can compete and our technology can compete and an attitude not of arrogance. Canadians aren't arrogant. Mm -hmm. But by gosh, we're competitive. We may be compassionate, but we're competitive and we are in a world market. And right now in the world markets, we're as good as anybody, given our population and resources and our technology to compete with anybody. No, it's, it's an incredible it's, story. Yeah, Canadians now realize that about Saskatchewan. And we have billions and billions of dollars of projects going on here, not with any government help at all. But so that was the first thing. The second thing is that we, we got partnerships, we network. We'd say we get a partner for this and a partner for that. So if we're going to build the first nitrogen fertilizer plant, we look for a partner. If we're going to build a pulp mill, we look for partners. Or if we're going to help do that, we, we find partners. Not that we have to lead. The, the problem with the extreme left wing is that they, they decide they're going to help, but then they got to run it. Well, you, you can help, as we did in interest rates, but that doesn't mean I'm going to be the bank. Right. right? So what... You, you can do an awful lot in the public sector and public good to protect people and provide incentives and so forth, but you don't need to run the operation. I mean, and that's where they made the mistake. And I think in, you know, foreign dictatorships and others, the government's dominant and it's just, it's very difficult to clean up and very difficult to modify. So that's why the more and more you can put in the private sector, you can manage that because you know what's going on and, or you can find out. Government is more complicated, and I'll give them that. So that's a, that's a key lesson um, out of that history, isn't it, uh, Grant, that really should guide any government today in terms of good public policy. Now, when, when you were setting up um, your team, you had um, a, a large group of MLAs. Uh, you had to establish your cabinet. What, how did you describe your first economic and policy priorities um, in your first term? What were they? Well, we had a theme that said that, uh, it may be old, but it worked, uh, Saskatchewan is open for business. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example. And in the book, it shows oil exploration in Alberta compared to oil exploration in Saskatchewan, right? And it all stopped at the border between Alberta and, and Saskatchewan. Yeah, it's a very powerful today. map in the book, isn't it? It's a powerful map. Yeah. So in consultation with the oil industry, they said, well, we're, you're not coming into Saskatchewan because your rules and regulations are prohibited. I said, well, here's what we're going to do. And with the advice of them, they said, give us a three-year royalty holiday and we'll go find oil. If we don't find it, fine, it's our expense. But if, you, if we find it, give us a break, a three-year break on the royalties to get some of our money back, and then we'll pump for 30 or 40 years. Well, I mean, as old Bill Dutton said, it probably helped develop the whole Bakken play in oil in southern Saskatchewan and right on into North Dakota. And it was, it's just amazing. If you go down south of Weyburn and through Estevan today, 
it's just pump jacks after pump jacks and it's a beautiful resource. We probably got as much oil in that basin, in the Williston Basin, to fund North America, to supply North America with energy for the next 200 years. Now, all of that took just a regulatory change. It's like privatization. You take a public company or a state-owned company and you just modify the financial instrument. You turn the switch and say, you know what, I'm gonna let people invest. When they nationalized, the government of the day had to go to New York, borrow a bunch of money and buy back what was already here. It was already here, but they had to buy it. So they borrowed the money to buy it. To privatize it, all you do is say, I'm gonna design an instrument where you can invest it and you as individuals can own it. Well, just click. And people said, well, why not? For sure. heaven's sake, you know. And at one point, uh, one, the president of, uh, of the Potash Corporation said, I just want you to know, Grant, that we just gave you $500 million in royalties this year. That was actually- 500 million. 500 million in one year. So, it, and then you put bigger and bigger companies, and as you mentioned, I was on the board of Agrium, and obviously we helped privatize uh, the uh, Potash Corporation of Saskatchewan. You start to put them together, and you have the biggest, best, world-class fertilizer company anywhere. No, and I, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's a prize. Yeah. It's really astounding. You know, speaking of maps, like you, you powerfully referenced that map in the book that back in the day, in 1982, there was this real provincial boundary where there was all this oil activity in Alberta and virtually nothing in Saskatchewan. It was really quite something. I can show you a map now that's interactive. On I'm a faithful reader of the um, Bull Report, the Barrel of Energy Report. Right. And it is just tons of activity, as you say, right across the province. It's really, really something. Yeah. Well, um, and just to add to that, is in terms of partnerships, both upgraders, the first two heavy oil upgraders in Canada, were partnerships with my government and with Husky and with the co-op in Regina, the cooperative refinery. And it was not particularly easy because it's a big project, but we put our shoulder to the wheel and helped them lead on them. Today, those two companies are extremely successful, yeah. extremely successful. And what we did is we had a multiplier effect. We made a finer and finer product out of a crude product. And uh, it's just a great example how partnerships, I didn't want to run it. I didn't want to run it. I, got, I could have gone and said, well, I'll take you more. In fact, I probably threatened a couple of them that way and said, we're doing this partnership because yeah. you need this. And they knew they needed it, right? So we stepped up uh, to bat, you know, put our shoulder to the wheel and, uh, and, they, and it worked. And they wow. made money, paid the government back. And it, it, was a, it was great. Now, in, in this webinar, it's almost hard to describe the extensive list of accomplishments and and one of the, the the big deals about the book is it's no hold holds bar i mean it talks about the challenges and failings of the administration as well but it, it's it's a long list of accomplishments and i guess what strikes me about that is how how did you manage that kind of change did you have a kind of an incisive policy approach to managing that change i noticed that you actually had a policy unit within the government, like within the premier's office, I believe. That's kind of unusual. Why did you decide to do that? Like, I mean, the agenda and the initiatives that you undertook were extensive. How did you manage it all? Well, that's a, that's a pretty good question. Uh, I, in part, uh, I had a great team. 
and I had cabinet ministers, and I won't name them all, but they're that and caucus members that got it. And they said, as I mentioned earlier, we may only get one term because this is an old, old sort of left wing province. Wow. So that so was actually you were self conscious and you talked about that as a team. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. That we've got to set some priorities. And if you're going to really change the mindset, we've got to start with deregulation. We've got to start yeah. with the partnerships. We've got to start with privatization, listening to these people work on the water projects, work on the agriculture products, set up a rural gas distribution system for agriculture and build a, and build the multipliers wherever we could find them. So it was, uh, we allocated certain people and certain cabinet ministers to lead on things. And, and they had a, you know, they, they would run into some problems, but they come back to the team and say, you know, how do I best handle that? So the cabinet would meet as a team, but then everybody had a job to do and you were all on the same page. And, and they did it with passion. Mm. I mean, they, they, <clears throat> they believed in it and they weren't going to, you know, if they ran into a political problem or something else and they finally had to come and it landed on my desk. Yeah. Well, I mean, we believed that we were right. We believed it uh, from, you know, from all our parents and relatives and friends and colleagues and others around the province who, and they, MLAs had all traveled and they were all hearing the same thing. So that that sheet music was solid. And so we just said, we are, here's the priorities. We gotta take on these big privatized corporations. We've got to uh, release the oil energy area. We gotta get out of the way of the agriculture sector and provide fertilizer and, and energy through our rural gas programs. And in the whole forestry industry, you know, there's just so much more we can do. And at the same time, we had to make changes in rules and regulations in a number of things because uh, one of the favorite things for government bureaucrats to do, and I've been there, the easiest word is no. No, you can't do that. No, no, no. <laughs> so we made some changes in the bureaucracy uh, as well for to people that thought like we did. And I mean, and you're allowed to do that. It's a new government. So, you know, you get a new deputy minister and you get some staff and you get people that are supportive. And so we were totally committed. And then we won a second term. And I will tell, say that in that second term, people like Don Mazankowski and Bill McKnight, MPs in the federal government under Mulroney, and, and the prime minister himself were very helpful. And one that was complicated, and it took me personally to a large extent to make it work, is addressing the treaty, <coughs> the treaty obligations the federal government had signed with First Nations. <clears throat> and um, so I happened to meet a, a chief at the time, Roland Crow, and we got on horseback and we rode in the Capel Valley for an hour or two or more. And I listened to him and he said, you have some obligations. And the easiest way to do that is give us some access to land. And at that time, under the 76 formula, natives could only get unoccupied crown land, which was awful. Right. So he said, you, if you design a system where you have a willing seller and we'd be willing buyers, we could get some land into the hands of the indigenous community rather than just a five dollar check every month. I mean, give us some resources so we can build. Long story short, we arrived at an agreement and today over a million acres has been transferred. It's one of the largest treaty settlements ever, probably worth in excess of a billion dollars in rural and urban property 
where they've got great economic success in all kinds of ventures in energy and oil and in agriculture and manufacturing and urban resorts, uh, casinos. And that, I'm proud of that and humbled as well. Um, <laughs> Chief Crow, he, he was kind enough to come out and, and we did a smoke, cer smoke ceremony and with sweetgrass and uh, he gave me a headdress. I'm an honorary chief and I, I respect it immensely, immensely. Wow, is that the headdress that's- Yeah, behind, behind me, you. there it is, wow. yeah. Very good. So that, you know, I, I, I think that's something that struck me as well. As a government, you pursued a policy with First Nations there that is, was really transformative and in many respects a model um, for working with First Nations really for, for the country. Um, and I, I think that that's probably one of, one of the most significant uh, transformational policies that you pursued. Well, I... I believe so. And uh, it was, it, again, it wasn't easy. I give a lot of credit to a classmate of mine, Sinclair Harrison was the vice president of SARM, Saskatchewan Association of Rural Municipalities. And it was not easy selling this to a lot of farmers and rural people that, you know, if I, and they may want to sell their farm, but they didn't necessarily want a native or, or a reserve to buy it. But he worked very hard with his members I worked hard in I caucus and uh, we campaigned hard and Roland Crow worked extremely hard and McKnight and Mazinkowski and the prime minister got it. I mean, it would be historic if you could do this uh, instead of welfare, economic opportunity. And I mean, I can tell you today on campus here at the University of Saskatchewan, we have a large number of indigenous students. They're fabulous. We've got dentists and doctors and lawyers and economists and accountants coming out. And they're going back and into society and making a huge difference. And we have so many good stories to tell. It frustrates me that I hear from time to time out of the federal government, you know, we're not doing this good. We can't do this. We can't do that. We, I mean, we can do so much. The attitude is, 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 is so important in governing. The attitude that you have a can be, we can be more attitude versus, oh, woe is me. You know, it's wow. a... So, so, so you have in many ways modeled that kind of success, and uh, that's a terrific story to be proud of as well. I want to talk a little bit about mega projects, and uh, I found this a fascinating part of the history of um, your government. In many cases, governments, especially today, don't even talk about mega projects. They're either too risky or beyond kind of a term of office. Um, and what I found really interesting is that your government arguably undertook four mega projects. And let's just go through them a little bit because uh, you've alluded to them already, but there was rural gasification, bringing natural gas to the myriad of rural communities that, that were underserved. Uh, that in itself was a huge project. And then you had the heavy oil upgrader, which you, which you alluded to, which has really paid off in spades and dividends. And then you've got two massive dam projects and a reservoir flood control project, namely the Rafferty Dam and the Almeida Dam. Why the heck would you be that ambitious to take on all four of them, let alone all this other agenda? Well, they needed to be done. And once in a while, in life, you get opportunities to make a difference. And, you know, politics is a little bit like preaching. 
it's it's almost a calling yeah yeah and and in my case it was like it was kind of des- i was destined to be where i was at that particular time and i thank god i was prepared for it i had an academic background a rural background a yeah. productive background a competitive background and so when you're given the opportunities <clears throat> it's like you have a chance to play in the finals or you got a chance to play in the world series right. well you've worked and worked all your life i mean you're not going to miss this right i mean that's so this this was the world series of politics but it made so much sense economically in the lives of ordinary people right across the province and indeed a bit of a wake up for the country frankly uh so you know i don't i can't really explain where we got the energy or enough passion to do these all at the same time over our period in government but we did uh i mean it's we were we were pioneers i mean pioneers um they don't say who in a muddle right my grandfather said that all the time he said when you're got a load of wheat in a wagon going to town the roads aren't good and it starts to sink he said you slap them on the butt and you say <laughs> as long as the wheels are turning you're going to be there well we faced lots of muddles very yeah. good well, uh, well what what strikes me about that story is that you were there to hit a home run. It wasn't like you were there out of a job. You were there to get it done. So, yeah. so was, I never thought of it as a job. It was a calling and we had an opportunity and we were, we were determined to win, determined to win and to, determined to do it. And I think an awful lot of us knew that at some point we would be defeated, but if these things were well done, the legacy would develop and you would see as we do today like so many of them are very very successful and the attitude change is so important in my life to see that people of Saskatchewan and the young people I mean people most of the graduates today in University of Saskatchewan stay here that wasn't the case in 1970 well anything right I now, mean, it was, uh, and it's college. interesting you mentioned about um, students at the University of Saskatchewan I do have a question from the audience um, uh, this question comes from a student actually at the U of S who says, I work with the free market student group. Um, do you have any advice to young people who are looking to make real change in our province? Any thoughts on that? Well, that's, that's a great question. Thank you very much. Um, know what you're talking about in terms of the value of markets to produce. They've raised more people out of poverty over, over the, in the globe, in the world, than any other system. It's not perfect. Alan Blake, Blakeney said democracy and markets aren't perfect, but they're way ahead of whatever's in second place, right? So understand how markets work. And then on those principles, you can begin, as you learn, you'll begin to lead because you will know what you're talking about and you'll encourage people to do those kinds of things and support markets and support individual economic development multipliers. So it's a, you will get a great reward, probably financially, but even um, in, your, in, in your individual life, because you've made a big difference. You'll make a bigger difference there than so many other things. Now, you may be a musician, you may be an athlete, I'm not saying you can't do it, but if you're in the market club, uh, for sure. And I'd love to visit with you and we can have coffee at the Mub or something. Oh, awesome. So Ethan, if you heard that response, make sure you pick up on Mr. Devine's kind offer there. Um, 
if you had to do things differently, and I know that's um, kind of a retrospective question, but if you had to do things differently, was there anything that you would do differently um, looking back? Well, I'd say a couple of things. When we were elected, uh, interest rates were 22%. And so we stuck our neck out and said, we got to protect homeowners and farmers. And given those circumstances and, and drought and some price collapse, it wasn't easy to balance the budget. And it took another government after us three or four years to balance it after. That always bothered us. And, and actually on the last election, we, we asked people, would you like us to balance the budget? And they said yes, but they voted for somebody else to do it, which was, maybe was the best thing. But one of, one of the imperfections that uh, I had, and some people do, as the Prime Minister Mulroney said, <clears throat> in a big election, when you sweep everything, you pick up some dust. We had so many MLAs from all corners of the province, some with no experience at all. And it's my job as the coach and the chief to keep an eye on all these people and so forth. And some of them got into some trouble, not big trouble, not a lot of money, but they broke some rules. And as a consequence, you could have a big political fallout as a result of that. So <clears throat> I think some, <clears throat> excuse me, subsequent governments have learned, <clears throat> keep your MLAs busy, keep them occupied, do all these things and encourage them. And we, I thought we were, but obviously we made some mistakes and it was, I wasn't attentive enough. And maybe, you know, lots of excuses. I have these big projects on my mind and so forth. I thought the gang's all good. But anyway, I regret that because a lot of people got hurt mm -hmm. and some very unjustly. It, it turned into be a, wit, a witch hunt. We could have corrected most of those uh, caucus expense things, you know, in a, in a committee. But given the talent of the opposition at that time, they just took it and ran with it. And, you know, people, you know, they're, it hurt people. There were divorces, a suicide, uh, and it, it, was a, it was a sad thing to experience. I could have done more. Uh, so I, I, I regret those failures. Yeah, of course. And, and it's, it's really, um, again, a humbling lesson, isn't it? How those kinds of, of errors can really have big ramifications um, on then a, the momentum of a government and its larger policy and in service to people. Um, so I did want to ask you a question regarding leaders. And you alluded to this earlier, um, like uh, working with Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. You, you met with Margaret Thatcher because um, she also um, undertook quite an agenda to uh, better serve the, the, the English people with privatization, among many other things. What was that like uh, working or meeting her? Well, I mean, it was, uh, it was great. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet with, uh, with her and meet with Ronald Reagan. And at that time, they were just leading the world in sort of free enterprise, go for it, you know. And one of her colleagues, Oliver Letwin, was very instrumental in teaching us how to privatize and showing us the ropes and the pitfalls and so forth. So I, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed meeting a lot of, of, at that time, pretty powerful people. And I, I mostly just listened. I mean, I, it was just, I didn't take up a lot of their time, but I met Ronald Reagan at a prayer breakfast in Washington and uh, in a Toronto uh, dinner with uh, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, I did have the opportunity to meet and talk with Pope Paul II. And uh, uh, as Catholics, that was, that was very important for me and my wife. 
um, and lots of governors, lots of premiers, lots of them were very good friends. Um, you know, after uh, Peter Longhi, Don Getty, and I worked so hard at something called Beach Lake to bring the country together, oh. <laughs> to get back to join the country. And Don was a, a, a faithful, great guy, loved the guy, uh, and uh, trustworthy, and uh, uh, and and others across across the U.S. and Canada. Spent a lot of time in the U.S. with governors. And because we had international trade that we we're working on, a water, water projects. An interesting one was North Dakota, because when we did Rafferty, we had uh, a governor, Schaefer, who was a Republican. And oh, then we yes. had right. Democratic governor, George Sinner. <clears throat> and after we were working and got the successful water project, there was a big sign as you cross the border. This is a product project of Sinner and Divine. Right. <laughs> so they, it was, we, they played on that, but they were very helpful. And I've always got along well with Americans when we are talking sort of reasonable trade relationships. And, you know, they can get kind of goofy and I suppose we can. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, I, I admired a lot of people. Uh, I had a lot of fun with Bill Vandersam, as you can imagine. Uh, so anyway, they're they're great. Oh, that's fascinating memories. Um, so if we switch today a little bit, um, as you reflect today on the state of our nation, you see what's going on. Um, I don't want to go through a, a, a long list, but there, there, it's a significant list, right? Between high deficits and debt, uh, we have low productivity investment issues. Um, we've got an education system that's often more focused on wokeism than the ABCs. And we have... We can't seem to get things done in our country, like pipelines. We'd sooner own them and operate them than get them done. And this is very concerning. And we keep importing that foreign oil to name a few things. I mean, this, I'm just touching the, the tip of the iceberg. Are you concerned about our nation these days? Uh, sure. And for sure that I am. And it goes back to the balance. <clears throat> it's not balance. There's not respect enough for what we can do as individuals and people in the market <clears throat> compared to what they think they can do with government. I'll give you an example. Um, we are being taxed due to climate change and so-called climate change. I mean, it may be some, but I mean, I'm a little skeptical. Uh, but if you assume there is, there's, a, there's what's going on today, which is tax the people. So it tax me as farmers, tax me as truckers etc., as if that's going to change the climate. On the other hand, there's fabulous research on how to capture carbon. My son works for Pembina Pipeline, and they have a carbon pipeline being developed. And they capture the carbon, the CO2, at the source of the refinery, and they take it to the pipeline and they sequester it, put it in the ground. The cement industry is doing it. More and more people can do it. Agriculture itself here in the prairies is likely a carbon net carbon sink. With best practices, we're finding people are actually going to pay farmers for their best practices that put more carbon in the ground than they expel. Right. Now, that's good science. And we're actually finding a market for carbon that is being sequestered. So imagine the economic activity. So one side has said, I'm going to tax you because I really don't know what else to do. The other side is saying, I can capture the carbon. I can do a great job as taking it out of the air. And I've got a market for it. And I'll pay you for doing the right things. Well, 
when you think politically, if the market is paying you and a farmer for doing the right things and the government is taxing you because they don't think you are, in the long run, who do you think is going to win? I think the carbon capture and the net sequestration is going to win because it makes sense and it's science. And, and, and if the world is respecting us as agriculture people, I think that's going to be very valuable. So that's one thing. But the second thing is, and I've done some research on some of these, is that with the problems in Ukraine and in Europe developing, and it's not going to go away early, if we use the port of Churchill or the port of Nelson in Manitoba, we can build a pipeline right through to Hudson Bay and we can export all over Europe. And we don't have to worry about Quebec politics or Eastern politics or Vancouver politics. It's our tidewater. It's ours. It's the prairies. We've got it. Well, imagine if you could take food and energy and communication in a, in a transportation corridor, and you could do it with Elon Musk tube travel, and I've done some research on it. You could take, imagine, Durham wheat out through Hudson Bay all the way to the pasture producers in Italy, and don't have to worry about anybody else. It's our own. Now that's, if you look at carbon capture, if you look at new ways to export, if you look at the things we can be, versus what we're doing now where we have all this energy, we can't get it to our Eastern folks. So although we pay huge in, in transfer payments, they buy oil from Venezuela, which is dirty and it takes a lot of effort and, and waste and spelling carbon to get the ships up here. Uh, and not a nice place to buy it from. And you won't buy it from your Canadian neighbors. So the West is dying to show you what we can be. I mean, yeah. we really are. We, we, we love the country. We can build. We can do all these things. But the emphasis is, well, I've served at the same time as Pierre Trudeau, right? It was a little bit that way when he went across the country and gave us the finger and so forth. Justin Trudeau, God bless him, has obviously hasn't got the education or the business environment. And he listens to people who have a completely different agenda. And they don't get my imagination of what the market could do and how we could serve the world in a first-class space. They just don't get it and don't want to get it. So it's about frightening people. We can't do this right. We can't do that right. We're awful. Uh, there's so much more that we can do. If we put natural, liquid natural gas into China, we can take those 3,000 coal-fired generators that they're making electricity with and cut the, em em the uh, emissions by half. Now, that's really doing something. We piddle around here. And, and, and it would help build our nation. And everybody would benefit, including we have so many First Nations. We could do. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's extraordinary. So in many ways, it's something how the foundation that you helped and your team nurture as a as a, a, a watershed moment in policy history in Saskatchewan could really be that template for the rest of the country. Is that not right? Well. That's nice of you to say that, but I, I agree to the extent that the balance between the market and government is extremely important. To keep that balance functional so it doesn't get to extremes one way or the other. And it, I mean, you can help out from the government, but you don't need to run it by the government. I mean, I go back to say that. And the marketplace is much easier to referee than it is big government. So, I mean, why wouldn't you want your country, if you're even you're the prime minister today, the whole country to feel like you're one, working together, cooperating, building and doing these things, uh, rather than making one side feel inferior 
and picking and choosing and, and the politics that goes on. I mean, the balance is, a, it's, again, it's a progressive conservative balance. Do what you should do in the public sector. Don't run the damn thing for sure, but <laughs> help and respect the private sector and its ability to grow and, and develop. That's terrific. So as we reflect, um, and uh, we'll need to wrap up soon, but as you reflect on the legacy of, of your time in government uh, with, with that team, what would you say is one of the biggest accomplishments that you would say as history continues to be written, what would you say that legacy would be? Uh, the change in attitude. The change in attitude, the can-do attitude. Um, and you can do it without big government. Uh, and I, I mean, I've been in government and I was in government and I worked for government, but th that balance, uh, the legacy is understanding that balance and the attitude of people that you can do. And it's a great pioneering attitude. My God, when you come into this country, like my grandfather's did in 1905 with a team of horses and, you know, a wagon, and you're going to break. 160 acres with a three bottom plow. Wow. I mean, think about that. The work. Uh, that's, I mean, that's that attitude that we can and we will and we build and we built communities. And today they'd be so proud of what we can do in agriculture and in industry and in universities. So I'm very proud of the U of S. I mean, we've got, we're pretty well balanced and I'm, I'm happy to say that. And, uh, and we're going to stay that way. Well said. Well, that brings our time together to a close. Uh, the Honorable Grant Divine, on behalf of all of us today, we're so thankful for your service and that of your team to not only the people of Saskatchewan, but also to our country. Your leadership re represented a policy watershed in our nation's history and serves, again, as a powerful example to all of us about how much more we can be. So thank you. Thank you very much, Dennis. God bless. Happy thank you to all of you, uh, friends of Frontier, who have joined us today. I encourage you to keep involved with the Frontier, and we welcome your comments. Be sure to join us next week for Leaders on the Frontier on Thursday, April the 21st. We are pleased to announce that our guest will be the legendary journalist and media personality, Holly Doan. Ms. Doan is the publisher of Blacklock the investigative online news outlet that sets the pace. We will be discussing the real state of Canadian journalism and the media today and talking about stories that you rarely, frankly, hear about. So don't miss it. Thank you to all of you who donate to make our mission possible at Frontier. Frontier is nonpartisan and we do not accept any government funding. Frontier uh, welcomes your support and thank you so much. That's it for today. And remember, without open discussion and debate, you are not thinking and nor are you free. So keep asking good questions and do not be afraid. And on behalf of all of us at Frontier, thank you for joining us.